Hi, I'm Carol Pope, and you're listening to The Stewie Tunes Show with Tony Stewart and Aaron Badgley. Okay, what's going on here? I'm supposed to be recording an episode of The Stewie Tunes Show with Aaron. Speaking of Aaron, where is that guy? Normally he's right on time. I don't see him anywhere. Oh, this is weird. Aaron, is that you? Oh, come on, man. If you're joking, cut it out. This isn't funny. Where are you? Okay, now I'm getting creeped out. Seriously. What the heck? I feel like I'm in a bad Vincent Price movie. Come on. Come on, come on, come on. Where are you? Wait a sec. Something's blinking. Oh, there you are. Hey, Tony. How you doing? You, You okay? You, uh... You look like you've seen it. Welcome to the Stewie Tune Show. These are insights and commentary on the music and musicians that shape our lives. And now, let's go back to class with your hosts, Tony Stewart and Aaron Badgley. Good evening, Mr. Badgley, and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you, Mr. Stewart. How are you? I am doing great. Um... You know, for a few reasons, actually. So one of them is this is our fifth episode together, which is exciting. But uh, even more exciting, this is the show's 25th episode. So it's kind of neat that it fell on the uh, Halloween special. Yeah. Congratulations. You deserve a lot of credit for that. And as a longtime fan of your show, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for you. Good for you, man. Yeah, it feels great. 25, you know, it's a pretty big milestone for sure. It's huge. It's huge. So it is our first annual... Halloween special. I and love Halloween. Do you like Halloween? I do like Halloween too, but you know, all the kids in my neighborhood have grown up now, so we don't get any trick-or-treaters anymore, uh, but still fun. Still oh, fun for sure. Great holiday. Here's a little, here's something you probably didn't know about me, Tony. I love horror films. Love oh, them. so, so you, tonight, today's episode's uh, going to be perfect <laughs> for you then. This will be a lot of fun. It will be for sure, for sure. See, I can't, I can't handle horror films. I get too scared. The, you know, you know what it is? It's the music. It just bothers me too much. I don't know whether that's, you know, just being a musician or whatever, but I'm so sensitive to that, that I can't, I can't do it. Like when I hear that music and I know something bad's going to happen, I'm done. <laughs> I, I'm out of the room. Drives Cynthia crazy. <laughs> uh, Andrea never liked horror films though she met me and now she's kind of hooked on them, which is kind of cool. Like I'm, uh, I've converted her to the ways of horror, so. Well, I don't know if I'll ever be converted, but uh, if I if I turn the sound off, I'm okay, you know. But... <laughs> well, that's what we're going to talk about is how music and, and horror and night, Halloween all kind of combine in rock and roll and in, well, actually in all kinds of music tonight, really. Not just yes, rock, yeah. yeah, for sure. And in fact, we're going to start our first segment out with songs that have curses uh, related to them. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> yes, and there's, there's some pretty creepy stories here, but... Yeah. Uh, I'm going to let you uh, kick it off with a song called Gloomy Sunday. Tell us all about that. Well, Gloomy Sunday, hang on. I got to get my notes because this I want to be accurate with this one. And, and Gloomy Sunday is a song. I'm going to tell you something. I, it came to my attention because of a band in the 80s called The Associates. And I got this album by them called Sulk. And I listened to this song and it was really quite a creepy song, Gloomy Sunday. It's actually about suicide. And then when I did some digging about it, it was originally written by a Hungarian composer. Um, but it was famously, it was made famous by Billie Holiday. So Gloomy Sunday has some pretty heavy lyrics in the song. Like the, the line that comes to me is, I cut myself shaving this morning. I wish the blade had slipped further down. Pretty, pretty grim. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Uh, almost everybody who's recorded the song has either died or committed suicide. And in fact, the first year it was written, I believe in the 30s, there were 19 suicides reported in <laughs> Hungary. Now that's the story, but here's the here's the funny bit. The BBC actually banned the song in the 40s because they found it too depressing. And do you know when they lifted that band? 2002. Oh, 2002. Yeah, I was going to say it must be pretty recent. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a song that has, and so here's the here's the kicker: the the group that got me into the band, uh, the song, the Associates, the lead singer, ten years later, hung himself. So, 
Oh my goodness. So there's a bit of a, the original title was the Hungarian suicide song. Um, yeah. I was just going to mention that, that I saw that nickname for that tune. So yeah. very creepy. <laughs> yes. Not, not exactly the kind of title you want to be known by, <laughs> <laughs> but it was written in the thirties and, uh, yeah, oh, sorry, 1941, the BBC banned the song. Now, I must tell you, the BBC were famous for banning songs. And one of the songs the BBC banned the same year was I'll Be Home for Christmas by Bing Crosby, because they thought it was too depressing. So let's take this with a grain of salt. But uh, they actually banned the song until 2002. But Yeah, that's incredible. It is. It's a, it's a, have you heard the song? I'm uh, a little bit scared to listen to it. So. <laughs> I have the, um, it was funny, funny stories. A friend of mine gave me a whole whack of uh, 78s and one of them is Gloomy Sunday. So I'm unpacking all the 78s. This is a true story, folks. I'm unpacking all the 78s and they're in, they were given to him by some guy who worked at the CBC. So they're all in mid condition. I get Gloomy Sunday, I pull it out and guess what? It's broken right in half. Oh my. The only one that's broken. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, so I don't have it now. <laughs> so that's Gloomy Sunday. Uh, Billie Holiday made famous. And um, of course, she passed away from, well, basically liver and heart disease from her, let's say, lifestyle. Um, but she she did the song and she did a great version of it. It's a good version. So there you go. You know, Billie Holiday would be a good topic for an episode at some point. Just huh? the abuse that she suffered at the hands of the authorities. It's awful. It is and, indeed. And, and and the fact that she could still create some of the most magnificent recordings. That voice of hers is oh, unbelievable. Sec- just second to none. And and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm game for a show about her. I'd love to talk about Billie Holiday. I'm actually a big fan. You know, I've become a fan over the last 15, 20 years. So... Yeah, well, let's do that for season four for sure. I agree. So that's that's Gloomy Sunday by Billy Holiday. So that's the the, cur- the cursed song. Now you have um, some some interesting ones too. What are you going to do? Well, I think I'll do uh, the Crossroad Blues. It's also been called Crossroads. Um, so we got to go all the way back uh, to Robert Johnson's time, and Robert Johnson was the legendary blues man who. Uh, died at the age of 27 and kicked off that whole 27 club idea. And I did an episode on that way back in season one. It was a two-parter, but Robert Johnson was the first one. And um, there's a, there's a neat legend around this. So legend has it that, you know, Robert Johnson, we don't know a lot about him. I mean, there's only one photograph of him that we know of. So he was an average guitarist. Uh, you know, and then he went away for a while, wanted to be a blues man. The legend says that he went to a crossroad and he sold his soul to the devil. And how the legend works is that you go to the crossroads and you'll get a tap on the back. And if you get that tap on the back, you can hand your guitar over. And it's a very tall man who they say is the devil. And the devil tunes the guitar and plays it and hands it back to you. And if you take your guitar back, you have then sold your soul to the devil. And that was the legend of the crossroads. And that's what was supposed to happen to Robert Johnson. And of course, after this incident, he was an unbelievable blues guitarist and nobody could believe, you know, what had happened because he was so good. Now I'm guessing that he played up the crossroads legend for publicity and probably just went away. Like a lot of these guys did and practiced and practiced and practiced, but you know, a good, uh, a good mythology never hurts. So he did a song called the Crossroad Blues, and he died under mysterious circumstances at the age of 27. And there's all kinds of theories about why he died. And you can go back and listen to those episodes in season one. But there are a bunch of tragedies related to this song. So a bunch of other groups and artists who've recorded this song have experienced tragedies. We'll start with Cream. So that was the group that Eric Clapton was in, the supergroup. They recorded Crossroads on their Wheels of Fire album, and Clapton was playing guitar. Not long after, when the band broke up, that was when Clapton developed his heroin addiction. So that was bad enough because that uh, really uh, derailed his career. But then, once he got his career back on track, his young son, his two-year-old son, died after he fell out of an apartment window. And that uh, inspired the song tears in heaven 
The next tragedy, and this is pretty creepy, is the Allman Brothers. Mm -hmm. They frequently perform the Crossroads Live. Yep. Uh, Dwayne Allman died in a motorcycle accident. And about a year later, uh, the guitarist from the band, one of the guitarists, Barry Oakley, died in another motorcycle accident near the same spot where Dwayne died. And then finally, uh, Leonard Skinner, they covered the song. And shortly after that, they were involved in a tragic plane crash where three band members and their tour manager were killed. And then uh, Skinner guitarist Alan Collins was in a car crash in 1986 that killed his girlfriend. So tragedy just permeates this song. And, and you know, the interesting thing about Skinner was that the album they released just before the plane crash or just after around the time had a song about death on it called oh. The Smell. Can't you smell that smell? The smell of death around us. And um, there's a whole lot about that whole story, too, because if you look at the album cover, the original cover, the band standing behind flames, a la either a plane crash or hell. And uh, so there's a lot of um, connections to that song. It's such a creepy story, man. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, the whole legend around uh, Robert Johnson is fascinating because we just know so little about him. But uh, yeah, such a such a large figure in the history of of rock and roll, you know, in the development of rock and roll. All these guitarists who say, "Yeah, Robert Johnson was a huge influence," but uh, we know very very little about the man himself, other than some anecdotes from people and, like I said, one photograph. You know, yeah, and a lot of myth. A lot yes. of myth. But I mean, I have a box set of his music and it's, it's phenomenal. You know, like it never gets boring to listen to that. It's, it's fantastic. So. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, what do you got next? Well, you did the blues and I did Billy Holiday. So we're going to go back to, we're going to go way back in time now to the, uh, oh geez. Oh, forever ago. Uh, it's called the ninth symphony. Uh, the curse of the ninth symphony. Now this is a superstition which actually, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about until you and I talked and then I did some research on it. But the idea is that uh, a composer is fated to die once they've written their Ninth Symphony. And this actually got its origins with, um, now, you know what? Apologies to classical music fans because I'm going to get the name. You know, I'm not great with names, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> just... <laughs> Spoiler alert and, and trigger alert. I'm going to get these names wrong. <laughs> but uh, Gustav Mahler actually yeah, started Yeah, Gustav this. Mahler, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he wrote his Eighth Symphony. And then uh, while he was working on his Ninth, he made a joke or he wrote that he, you know, he he, he was, uh, you know, he's cursed. He finished the Ninth and he died with his Tenth incomplete. He was writing his Tenth Symphony and he passed away. So there's all these composers who... Um, passed away after doing the Ninth Symphony and, and um, you know, Beethoven and I can pronounce him thanks to the Beatles. Um, <laughs> we're all over. Chuck Berry connection. But there's all these, these composers who passed away. Now, there's a lot who did do their Tenth Symphony and much like Gloomy Sunday, there's there's always things to counter that. But that's the curse of the Ninth Symphony. Um, I don't know. You, you, you must know about this, right? Because you're a music teacher and you play, you know, you must know. This yeah. Stuff. So, yeah, the curse started with Mahler, uh, for sure. Now, you know, Beethoven had only intended to write his nine. He wrote his ninth, and uh, that was it. And, in fact, when he wrote that, uh, it was premiered in 1824. And um, it's known as the Choral Symphony, like, uh, because he used voices for the first time in a symphony and big choirs and everything. Right, right. But um, that was so monumental in the development of the symphony that for a long time, composers were terrified of writing symphonies. They just did not want to be compared to him. You know, uh, Johannes Brahms, who was supposed to be his successor, I mean, waited till he was in his forties to write his first symphony. And he said, he had this quote, he said, I felt like there was a giant walking behind me all the time. You know, no one wanted to be compared to him, but yeah, there have been quite a few composers who hit nine and then never made it to number 10. Very creepy. Well, maybe that's the, the magic number. But yeah, so that's the curse of that. Well, as you you know, and again, it's like anything else, right? You can, you know, we were talking earlier about the Paul McCartney death clues. You can read into a lot of stuff and it can fit together if you wanted to. Or, you know, sometimes it's just weird coincidences. Or sometimes, as you say, like Beethoven, he wasn't going to write a tenth. So, you know, who knows? But it's very creepy nonetheless. 
And this next one, I don't know whether to call this one creepy or <laughs> funny or a combination. And you know exactly what I'm going to be talking about because when we discuss this. So the we, next we one. We for about 15 minutes about this, guys. <laughs> yes. So this one is the Frank Sinatra song, My Way. And um, the song My Way has a curse associated with it. I, I can't do this without laughing. I, and I apologize to anybody from the Philippines who's listening. But, um, this song is uh, banned in a lot of karaoke bars in the Philippines. And uh, My Way has fueled a ton of fights and fatal killings. And at one point, there were at least a half a dozen murders over this song in less than a decade um the media actually have labeled them as my way killings due to the high number of them and uh according to you know many the the trouble with my way is that it's one of those songs that everybody knows and it's it's a signature song by frank sinatra and in the Philippines, I guess they take karaoke very seriously. And if you don't do it well, you are inviting ridicule and uh, potentially violence and potentially death. So uh, people are smart enough now. They either self-ban and they won't do my way or some karaoke bars have just said, uh-uh, no, uh, no my way by Frank Sinatra. And very, very uh, who strange. Who wrote that song? You know who wrote it, right? Uh, who wrote it? Paul Anka. Canada's own. Oh, that's right. That's right. Maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it is a, it's a very odd story, but yes, my way in the Philippines, if you are ever there on vacation and uh, you're going to a karaoke bar, don't do that song, please. That people must a, have, people in the Philippines must have lost their brains when they saw Sid Vicious do it and he changed all the words and turned <laughs> it into a punk anthem. That must have just blown people away. Like, oh, no, 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 Sid, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's very strange, but uh, kind of neat nonetheless. So uh, this looks like a fantastic spot to uh, take our first break. Uh, so what do you think? Why don't we go to our uh, music history moment and we'll get the giggles out and we'll be right back. On Halloween night, 1974, Led Zeppelin held the launch in the UK for their new record label Swan Song at Chislehurst Caves in Kent, England. The event featured nuns in suspenders serving drinks, a naked woman covered in jelly lying in a coffin, and naked male wrestlers cavorting in the recesses of the caves. Also present were their label mates Bad Company and The Pretty Things. The launch was also a party for the release of The Pretty Things' new album, Silk Torpedo. The label's name, Swan Song, was named after a Zeppelin instrumental track that was unreleased. And now, let's get back to the Halloween special. And we're back from the music history moment. That was a bit of an odd one. Don't say we didn't warn you folks. It's the Halloween special. And uh, Aaron, you wanted to mention something about this. So go ahead. Well, I, I just thought I'd ask you a question. See, this was quite the party to launch a record label. And, you know, the Beatles had Apple Records and Frank Zappa had Bizarre Records. Do you know who one of the first artists was to have their own label? Hmm. No. I'm going to connect it to our last segment. Okay. Who was it? Sinatra. Oh. He owned Reprise Records, uh, which went on to sign Neil Young, Jimi Hendrix, Dean Martin, who's pretty pretty cool. So, yeah, Frank Sinatra owned Reprise Records until I think the mid-70s when he sold out to uh, Warner Brothers. But, yeah, that was it. He, he kind of got the ball rolling with the artist-run label. Oh, very cool. I don't think he had a naked woman in a coffin at his <laughs> No, I can't imagine Frank doing that. Wait a minute. You never <laughs> Now, no, the naked woman would have been waiting for him back up in his hotel room, but <laughs> Oh, man, I love Halloween. <laughs> That's right. Don't say we didn't warn, folks. <laughs> okay, for segment 2. Yeah. We're going We're going to be talking about um uh, musicians who adopt personas on stage. And, you know, there's, there's a variety of reasons why musicians do this. Sometimes they do it, you know, in the case of two people that we're going to be talking about here, um, just because they love horror films and they love the uh, ability to get up on stage and adopt a persona. 
other musicians, it's a way of dealing with nerves. I mean, there's a variety of reasons. Sometimes they think they need a gimmick or a hook. Um, so we're going to be talking about uh, a few different musicians who have adopted personas over the years in rock history. I really do think we should kick it off. Uh, we should talk about Vincent Damon Fernier. And anybody who's listening out there will say, who the heck is Vincent Damon Fernier? But uh, he is much better known by his stage name of Alice Cooper. And Alice Cooper, of course, was a huge horror movie fan. And uh, a lot of people won't know that uh, Alice Cooper was the name of the band first. That's and then right. when the band And when the band broke up, he... Uh, you know, to make sure that he held on to rights uh, for Alice Cooper songs. He adopted that name as his legal name, and he uh, and so it became him. But Alice Cooper is known as the father of shock rock, and for good reason. I mean, he's uh, he's been doing it for a long time. And, uh, of course, like all shock rockers, has upset many people along the way. Um, and I love reading criticisms of these guys because they're very funny. Because when you look at uh, interviews with Alice Cooper, I mean, he is the most well-spoken, polite, funny guy, you know, but just wanted to adopt the persona and uh, felt like he felt at the time because they were playing in a band that was basically almost like a Yardbirds cover band and then they were doing some other stuff um you know but he felt like they needed a gimmick to stand out and this character that he came up with alice cooper uh was the hook that he went with and sure enough that uh, that brought them a lot of success and, and brought him a lot of success afterwards as well do you remember the old uh, mythology of where he got the name alice cooper well i read a few different things but go ahead well the old the original the original story was that the band was playing with an ouija board and the spirit yes. of a witch came in, and her name was Alice Cooper. And so they took the name Alice Cooper from the Ouija board. But um, it's nothing as dramatic as all that. It's actually just a they, – they were actually making a name for themselves. They had a name called Naz, N-A-Z-Z. Yes. And Todd Rundgren at the same time had a band called Naz, and they took off bigger first. So they had to come up with another name. And, you know, this is at the time of all the hippie band names and, and all that. So they just kind of went with a – as Alice Cooper said, an, an innocuous name, like a, you know, could be Shirley Jones, although she was with the Partridge family, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just yeah. a name. Yeah. Yeah. He said they wanted to sound like, you know, like your grandmother who's knitting sweaters <laughs> there. And then, uh, and uh, he, you know, the, the chicken incident where the famous uh, chicken, yeah, yeah, the famous chicken incident. And so this is related to Frank Zappa because he was signed, uh, they were signed to Frank Zappa's, uh, record and there are so many funny stories around that you know yeah. uh the the story when uh you know zappa said show up at seven and i'll uh, i'll listen to you guys and they thought he meant seven in the morning and uh zappa said after you know he thought any group who's going to show up here at seven o'clock in the morning he meant seven at night and he said any group who's going to show up here and play that kind of music at seven in the morning i'm in and uh he signed them he said you know i don't get you guys so i'm signing you and that was uh that was Zappa, but, but the chicken incident is, uh, a lot of these guys have these incidents that define them. And of course, uh, what actually happened, Alice, uh, said, he said that, uh, he had this pillow with feathers in it and somehow a chicken had got up on the stage and he was going to, you know, rip the, the pillow open and feathers were going to go everywhere. And for some reason he had a chicken there and he, in the, you know, in the middle of his show, had this chicken in his hands and he thought it, it would just fly. And so he threw it cause it had wings and he threw it. Yeah. And of course it landed in the audience and just got demolished. And um, there were all these rumors floating around that he had bit the head off a chicken on stage and drank its blood. And uh, Zappa sacrificed, him, sacrificed yeah. that's right. And Zappa asked him about it the next day and he said, no, I didn't do that. And he says, well, don't deny it, whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> and and the funny story, the other funny story to connect with the chicken incident was when they were crossing the border just after it happened and they were coming to Canada. Did, did you hear about this? No. They're, they're coming to customs and they they got their truck, their trailer full of instruments and all that. And the customs office pulls them over and, they, and Cooper says, I thought they were looking for drugs or booze or he goes, no, they were looking for chickens. They thought we had a... <laughs> They have a cage of chickens at the back of the truck. Uh, so funny. So poor Alice. But that that incident, man, just gave him like all the street cred in the world, though. You know, it was uh, it was like Ozzy and the bat story, right? You know, oh, the uh, head off the, the bat. bat. 
again, right? One of those stories that just becomes part of the legend. Yeah. But um, yeah, Alice, you know, like I said, he, uh, the nicest guy in the world. I just watched a really great interview with him. Uh, Steve Van Zandt was interviewing him and uh, you know, he's the, he's, Alice is the the most well-spoken, thoughtful, funny, funny guy. And uh, some great stories of back in the day, you know. Um, But he said it's just a persona, just a way for him to uh, get up on stage and do something a little different. And he figured they needed that. And uh, it certainly didn't hurt them. Wow. I mean, the stage show with the guillotine and the hanging and the snakes and the baby's heads. And he he went kind of over the top. And he did it early in the 70s. We're not talking the 90s or... Can you imagine? Yeah. Can you, you know, he's decapitating baby dolls on stage, which is great. I mean. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and he, uh, was in a serious accident when, uh, you know, cause they would always, he would have where he was, uh, uh, being hung and, uh, he had a really bad accident, really bad injury from, uh, doing that at one show. But, um, you know, he had substance abuse issues and, um, one of the interviews that I was reading with him, he, he was, a you know, he had addictions to booze and, uh, and to, uh, drugs, but, um, became an avid golfer. He's a very avid golfer and a good golfer. And, uh, he's been a guest on the golf channel and, uh, his response to, you know, why he took up golf. He said, I needed to replace one addiction with another. And so he became heavily involved in golfing, but, uh, you know, I heard when his sons were playing little league, he was a little league coach and, you know, just a, just an average everyday guy outside of, uh, out of the music business and hard to imagine Alice Cooper as your kid's uh, little, little league coach, but. I mean, there's a Simpsons episode waiting to happen. Well, exactly. <laughs> now you've got, uh, a figure next who I didn't really know about until you mentioned him to me. And then I checked him out and I, I screamed him fast. Yeah, Screaming, Screaming Jay, Jay Hawkins. Hawkins. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, tell me about him. Well, so Screaming Jay was this artist in the 50s. Um, he, you know, he was, his career was really not going anywhere. Um, but he was a singer, writer. He played piano, saxophone, man after your own heart. Um, and he had a great voice. And in uh, for 56, he recorded a song called I Put a Spell on You, mm-hmm. which has been covered by and anyone who's watched the movie Hocus Pocus starring Bette Midler. We'll know the scene when they're singing I Put a Spell on You in the film. Um, he himself sang the song, and, and there was an old DJ named Alan Freed. And Freed said to him, look, I'm going to give you some money, $300. I want you to come on stage in a coffin, come out of the coffin, and just start screaming the song. Because if you listen to the original record, he's got some – he matches mm-hmm. uh, James Brown, Scream for Scream. Uh but he he kind of didn't want to do it, but then he did it. But unfortunately, then he became known as a shock, like Mike Cooper. That became his persona, right? He became known as this guy that comes out of a coffin, sings, you know, I put a spell on you. And, and um, he also, by the way, that song was banned by the BBC. There the you go. They, they, bought, they banned everything, I think. Uh, they banned Iron the Walrus because of the word knickers. So there you go. Hmm. Um, so yeah, he, he was on this label called OK Records. He put out n- numerous singles and then over time, he kind of concentrated more on his music. Um, he, one of his last records was a rather funny, and you can never hear it called Constipation Blues because he wanted yes. to write a song about real pain, which makes me giggle every time I hear that. But he went on to, to direct movies, produce movies, and, um, he did something up in Alaska. Did he not? He, uh. Yeah, he was, well, he was also the, the middleweight that's boxing right. champion of Alaska. <laughs> that's, right, that's right, the middleweight, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a boxing guy, and yeah. I, that blew me away when I read that. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just love those stories, I really do. Oh, me too. And he hated the, uh, he he really resented, didn't he, having yeah. to, to do that persona of Screaming Jay, but I mean, it was what was paying the bills for him, obviously. Yeah, and, he, uh, he, he, he. See, he didn't want to do that persona, but that, that got thrust upon him and it did pay the bills and he built a whole career around it. And uh, sad part of it is this guy had genuine talent. Oh, it, a great Cooper, voice. Cooper. Yeah, same thing. Separate the image and just listen to the music. And I mean, Screaming Jay Hawkins is fantastic. And I mean, uh, anyway, so he's, he, uh, that's Screaming Jay. And I recommend that anyone if you could take some time and just dig up some of his music on YouTube or 
even better, a radio station or something, just listen to Screaming Jay. Um, Mm -hmm. It's well worth seeking out. Well, his version of I Put a Spell on You is uh, so different, you know, because I always associated that song with almost like a love song, right? I put a spell on you and now you're mine. But his, when you listen to that interpretation, it is, it is scary. It's it's the noises he makes because he's just, he doesn't just sing the song. It's like, if you listen, he's, he's making some inarticulate noises and it's, it's downright scary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But listen to him folks, because uh, both him and well, actually, you know, all the people that we talk about in this segment were, you know, genuinely very, very talented. I mean, Alice Cooper had an incredible vocal range as well. Um, I guess, you know, we can't really talk about musicians adopting personas without talking about kiss because I mean, what, I mean, they've, huge band especially in the uh, 70s and uh, i remember i was just a kid you know and we would uh, all be running out and grabbing kiss records and listening to them and fascinated with um like i was just a kid when they were doing the comic book crossovers and everything else and uh, we were we were fascinated and i remember the kiss lunch boxes and everything else well, when they, we were going they, to school they took marketing to a whole new level oh for sure and you you can actually buy a kiss coffin on their website, which doubles as a cooler. So you can keep your cold drinks in it until you die. And then you can be buried in a kiss coffin. There you go. <laughs> yeah. They, they did take marketing to a whole new level. I mean, they've made money over the years. Uh, you know, you talk about what they call passive income, right? But those guys, man, they were raking it in and um, it was just an early decision. They felt like they needed something. So I, they adopted those four characters and, uh, I mean, look what happened, you know. I think they set the record for the number of gold records, eh, in the United States, I believe. I think it's at one point, yeah. I think Garth Brooks overtook them at some point, but I think you're right. You know, the two of them are teachers, right? I didn't know the which two? Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Oh, okay. They were they were and and Paul and Gene Simmons' parents were survivors of the Holocaust. They uh, mm-hmm. survived the Holocaust and they moved to Israel and uh and I, I always wondered how that impacted him as well in terms of the persona, the image, the the whole, you know, because that's a that's a hell of a legacy to grow up with, right? And um, yeah, for sure. And the stories and uh, and Simmons has talked about it. So the the other thing I love about Kiss. I'm an, I'm not the biggest fan of all their music, but no, me neither. But he's yeah. a very honest guy. <laughs> Gene Simmons is not like he'll he'll you listen to the interviews with him. He's very clear about what he's doing and why and and. Same with Paul Stanley, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, in terms of that glam rock movement, I mean, they really, really set the bar at a, at a new level. Oh, they and, took it to a new level, to, yeah. Yeah, you have to talk about them. And our final uh, person we're going to talk about this segment is a little more recent, but a guy named Brian Warner. And again, people may not know who Brian Warner is, but they sure do, just based on his notoriety, know who Marilyn Manson is. And, um, Again, there's a guy who's got a very unique um, stage persona. I was never a huge fan of his music, you know, but recently I've been listening to it again. And what struck me is how good, how incredible his voice is. The different effects that he can do with his voice is amazing. And, you know, if you can look beyond the theatrics, and because I, I was like a lot of people, I have a little bit of a hard time getting past that uh, with his music, but uh, he's got uh, something to say. And very thoughtful when you watch interviews with him. Very, very thoughtful. Very, very articulate. Very intelligent guy. Well, I thought he he stole Bowling for Columbine. Um, mm-hmm. His interview segment in that film was bang on. Like what he says and how he articulates himself is is very, very well spoken. And and um, yeah, he's not he's not a dumb guy. And it's and, and no. there's a lot of talent in that. that that little body of his. I mean, he's a small guy, but he's he's um he's huge, right? I mean, he's a, a force. I, I, I'm with well, you. I, I wasn't a big fan of his music, but I've I've actually grown to like more of it than I have in the last few years. Yeah, when I was listening to it the last couple of days, you know, there are a few tunes. I mean, the band was great. Number one, his band was was terrific, but uh, just the different. Like I, they, when I was reading this, they were saying he can do. You know, there's five different effects that he does with his voice and you know all the growling and all that other stuff which that's not easy to do and uh, amazing amazing and his uh, his range is incredible just like uh, Alice Cooper's you know huge range and 
just decided that uh, this was a persona he was going to adopt on stage. But he he'll be the first to say that's not me. Like that's that's Marilyn Manson on stage. You know? Yeah. Well, he did it when you talk about his voice. There was a TV show called Once Upon a Time, which what my kids loved and we watched, and he did the voice of a character named The Shadow, and uh, it was so good because it was actually quite scary. He, he I mean, he, and it was just his voice. He didn't do anything to modulate it. It was just him, you know, doing this really great voice of, Sha- of Peter Pan Shadow, so he played. So, not a bad actor either. Like, no, he's done quite a few movies now, and uh, and uh, you know, and television as well. Well, this looks like a a great spot to uh, move to our break. We're going to find out uh, which famous birthdays we've got on Halloween on October 31st. And we'll be right back with the Halloween special. On October 31st, 1950, American singer, songwriter and guitarist Moon Martin, who wrote the song Bad Case of Loving You, better known as Dr. Doctor, was born. Then in 1961, we saw the arrival of Larry Mullen Jr., who was U2's drummer. In 1963, Johnny Marr, the guitarist with the Smiths, and Mickey D. of Motorhead were both born. And finally, in 1966, Adam Horowitz, better known as Ad-Rock from the Beastie Boys, came into the world. And those are our birthdays for October 31st. Let's get back to the Halloween special. And we're back for our final segment of the Halloween special. And Aaron, I've got to tell you, I, uh, I'm i really glad that our episode release schedule fell on Halloween. Yeah, me too. A really, really fun episode to tape, you know. It's um, a blast. It really is a blast. So we are going to give what we consider to be the official Stewie Tunes Halloween playlist. We'll go with our top five. Halloween songs that you should play on the 31st, perhaps, or just around now. But uh, we'll start with number five. We're going to go all the way back to 1958, a guy named Sheb Woolley, and a song called Purple People Eater. And I remember this from when I was a kid very well. My parents actually had this on uh, on a record. They had, you know, remember those compilation albums where they had uh, all those novelty songs? Well, my parents had that and I, I played that to death back when I was a kid, you know, but I remember, <laughs> I remember this song really, really well. And, uh, this song, was it on KTEL? Was it on KTEL? Yeah, it's one of those KTEL compilations. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, what was that one member? Hello, Mata, hello, Fada. Here Camp I am Granada. at Camp Granada. That was on there. Yeah. Sherman, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The witch doctor was on there. Um, and, witch doctor, all... and witch doctor, that guy went on, he, that's the guy who did the chipmunks. That was his oh, first. Really? That was his first uh, experiment using sped up sound. Yeah, that's that's the guy that went on to do the Chipmunks. So yeah, I love those yeah. novelty songs. Yeah, and Purple People Eater used a bit of sped up sound too, if I recall right. Yeah, uh, yeah at the end, right? I think so. Yeah, it's been so long since I've listened to that song, but uh, it's not a scary song. <laughs> no, not a scary song. Just a fun <laughs> song, and you know, it was. Um, it was originally when he wrote it and he submitted it to the label. They didn't want it. They didn't want to do it. But then all the young people were listening to it at, on lunch hours. And he noticed, you know, a group of about 50 young people, one of the label executives noticed a group of about 50 young people who are listening to the song and they changed their mind and they decided to release it. So it's kind and it of went neat. to number one. Yes. In fact, the other novelty song on this list, when we get there also went to number one. So that's kind of cool. Yep. Do you know, it was, it was probably, do you know how long it was number one for? Like, I think it was like three or four weeks. Oh, so that's a long time. Oh, yeah. No, it was a big hit. And it, you know, it's one of those songs that because it's a Halloween time, you put on any oldie station this week, I guarantee you'll hear it. You know, like I, I uh, and I, actually there's a Halloween station. I get Sirius Radio in the, radio in the car. and They've been playing it ad nauseum already. So, mm-hmm. well, the, one yeah. of the other songs we're going to talk about actually went top 10 a few times because they kept reissuing the single. But we'll yeah. talk about that in a minute. So next we're going to go Ray Parker Jr. Um, Ghostbusters. And I was always fascinated with this because I remember uh, when Huey Lewis sued him. And I was, said, was going to bring that up. Yes. Yes. Like, you know what, dude, you ripped off. Uh, I want a new drug. Like He did. Could, could you be any more blatant? And, and uh, it was an obvious rip off of that groove. And uh, sure enough, uh, Huey Lewis won that uh, lawsuit, but uh, he ended up getting a settlement for that. But still Ghostbusters was a catchy song. I remember that. At high so school was that one a new drug? 
Yeah. I mean, I personally like I want a new drug better, but uh, Ghostbusters for sure is another quintessential Halloween song. But yeah, the lawsuit, I think, is probably the most interesting part of that song. Well, and the fact that the producers actually wanted Huey Lewis originally. Hmm. He was approached before they approached Ray Parker Jr. And, and Huey Lewis went, nah, I don't think so. And then all of a sudden his own song was being, and as you say, blatantly, folks, just play the songs back to back. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's like hearing the same song twice. It's wild. (laughs) And Huey Lewis is a, is an interesting guy. You know, this is just a little aside, but did you know that Huey Lewis was, uh, when he went to college, he dropped out before he finished his degree, but he scored uh, like just about perfect on his SATs for college. He's a math, math genius. Yeah. Huey like Lewis. Huey Lewis. Yeah. I did. Like, I think he scored either perfect or, or very close to perfect on the math section of, uh, of his SATs. Now that I didn't know. You, you got yeah. me on that one. You got me on that one. But, yeah. I watched, uh, one of those, you know, VH1 specials about him and, uh, they were talking about that very interesting guy, but he's, uh, he's suffering now from hearing loss, poor guy. So he doesn't know, uh, I don't know the name of the condition, but he can't hear himself anymore singing. So, so. is that why he doesn't uh, record and stuff? Yeah, I think so. He's just, he has a ranch, um, in Montana or Wyoming or, uh, and he's basically out of the business because he can't hear himself on stage anymore and That's they don't know what to do. So it's too bad. It is too bad because, you know, he had, legitimately, he had talent. And his band, actually, the news, mm-hmm. was Elvis Costello's backup band on his first album. Oh. It, wasn't, it wasn't Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Um, Huey Lewis is in England, and his band backed up Elvis Costello on Elvis's first album. So there you go. Yeah, that was a great band, too. It, yeah. Tight. Yeah. Tight. I, I was a huge Huey Lewis guy, actually, back in the day. All right, next, number three. This is uh, Bobby Orris Pickett with another Bobby novelty Morris. song in 1962. And this went to number one as well, uh, The Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. And 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 uh, have you ever seen film of him singing it? No. You, you really, his faces he makes while he's singing it, are, it's, it's, it's mesmerizing. So go on YouTube and find him performing it on a show called uh, Shindig. And it's, okay. it's amazing. It's fantastic to watch because it's... Uh, like that's when he's doing the Boris Karloff impression. Yeah, yeah. Stuff, right? and, but it's his face, though. It's, like, it's, it's, it's incredible to watch. Like, it's, I don't know how he did it. But the Monster Mash is one of the few records. The Twist did it and Twist and Shout did it. But it charted continuously. Like it charted in 62, 73, 70. It just kept going back on the charts, right? And um, by the way, Banned by the BBC. Of course, of course. Because <laughs> it was too morbid. <laughs> too morbid. The Monster Mash. That could be our sub-theme tonight, you know, banned by the BBC. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's too morbid. Monster Mash? Really? Come on. Yeah, but anyways. No, no kidding, eh? And uh, it's a miracle. You know, if it wasn't for Radio Luxembourg, all those uh, <laughs> bands like the Beatles, boy, because the BBC certainly wasn't playing rock and roll. I know, right? But uh, oh. yeah, so there's the Monster Mash. And then... Um, we, I actually have, because I'm a nerd, I have the Monster Mash album. And on the album, there's a Christmas song, which is very close to Monster Mash, called Monster's Holiday. Okay. Which I like to say is great, but it's fun. My kids loved it growing up, and we used oh, to okay. listen to it at Halloween and Christmas. kind of like the uh, Star Wars holiday special? Or what? <laughs> no, nothing's no. like the Star Wars holiday <laughs> special. <laughs> no, that's untouchable, man. That's, that's untouchable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's classic that is <laughs> did you see was it mark hamill who went on did you, did you see that after the first debate between trump and biden and he said that was the worst thing i've ever seen and i was involved in the star wars holiday special <laughs> you know i i admire artists like that who can do that because that's very true very true <laughs> although you know what tony if i could buy a dvd of it i would <laughs> oh me too me too for sure <laughs> so we have to include Alice Cooper in our top five. I think um, it would have to be Welcome to My Nightmare. I mean, he's had so many great songs, but I think for a Halloween playlist, you got to do uh, Welcome to My Nightmare. And uh, you said you had a story related to Alice, didn't you? Well, he did a song, which for for people like me, like I, I, I said I like horror films, and I actually like 
um, the original horror films from the 20s and 30s, more so than the ones that are out now. But I love the new ones too. But uh, he wrote a song called Ballad of Dwight Fry. And, and a lot of you at home won't know who Dwight Fry is, but he always played the Igor characters in the Frankenstein movie, Dracula movie. He was always like the kind of the, you know, the hunchback and he would, you know, was, anyways, he was a B actor. He never started anything. He he just did these little bit parts, side parts. And uh, he died a tragic death. He was on a bus and he was going to film a commercial or something. And he, he died of a heart attack on the bus and no one bothered to even help the guy. No one knew who he was. So Cooper wrote a song called hmm. The Ballad of Dwight Fry, which is on his Love It to Death album. And it's quite, um, it's actually a quite sympathetic look at uh, Mr. Fry. And I always thought, kudos to Mr. Cooper for writing that song because it it, it certainly, well, he was an unsung hero. I mean, you watch, you watch Dracula, you see the character Renfeld, and you can't help but be scared by the guy eating bugs off of his, you know, cell. Uh, anyway, so I just had to share that with you because I thought that was a cool cool song, cool story, and Ballad of Dwight Fry. Right Good on. Song. Good song. Well, I think this is going to come as no surprise to anybody listening out there, but the uh, number one song on the Halloween playlist has got to be Thriller, in my opinion. Uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller. So that might be Yentl. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> So uh, Thriller, I, I mean, that uh, music video uh, was was directed by John Landis. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael Jackson had the idea and he approached John Landis about doing it. And it's, you know, a 13-minute music video and um, iconic. It, it has become, uh, it, I mean, it raised the bar for music videos, definitely. But I didn't know this. It was the first music video uh, to be placed in the National Film Registry as a work, you know, that's culturally significant or important. So that, that was very, very cool. And, uh, I always thought it was more of a short film than a video, don't you? Yeah. And of course, Vincent Price in there, you can't go wrong with Vincent Price in there, but, uh, what, what an incredible achievement that video is. I watched, uh, that video again today and, um, amazing, you know, just everything about it. And it raised the bar certainly for, for music videos and it showed, uh, whole new level of artistry and, and the iconic uh, dance that's in there. Uh, so many elements. And if we, if we can just, again, set aside all the stories of Michael and what happened and all that as a song, it's phenomenal. Yes. I mean, the thriller album is a great album, but that song is like the cornerstone of the album. And I remember getting the album in 82, just playing that song over and over again. Cause I was just, mm-hmm. it had so much in it. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. It, I mean, great song and unbelievable music video. Definitely. I think the, uh, like you said, if you know, you put aside the other stuff about Michael Jackson and, uh, that's a tough one for, uh, the, you know, well, you know, I'm a teacher and, and that's a tough one. We've had that discussion in music classes about separating the artist from the work, you know, yeah. but, uh, I mean, regardless, uh, broke new ground in the music industry. Definitely. So that is our Stewie Tunes top five playlist. And of course, we have to find a way, and there are many ways, I'm sure, but we have to find a way to tie this episode to the Beatles. So I'm going to get the music queued up. And here we go with Six Degrees of Beatlemania. First of all, I have to say, Tony, this has been one of the funnest things I've done in quite some time. This has been a fun episode to do. So thank you for uh, for that. Well, thank you, too. It's been, it has been great. It's been Total so much blast. fun. <laughs> I'm just laughing away still about my way. <laughs> Me too. Uh, <laughs> um, so I thought about how I'm going to connect this special or, or the episode to the Beatles. And I thought, I'm going to connect it to two of the things we talked about tonight. How's that? Sure. Okay. And it's, uh, and it's connected to one member, Paul McCartney. So Alice Cooper has a band right now called the Hollywood Vampires, which features Johnny Depp and Joe Perry from Aerosmith, kind of a super band. And the first album featured a guy named Paul McCartney, who who sang lead on one song called Come and Get It, which was a hit by Badfinger that Paul wrote for Badfinger. So they redid Come and Get It on the Hollywood Vampires album with Alice Cooper. 
But the other thing that's connected to Paul McCartney, and, and not a lot of people know this, that when Thriller came out, they weren't so sure it was going to be the album it turned out to be. So the first single off the album was a duet with Paul McCartney, The Girl mm-hmm. Is Mine. And Michael Jackson said, I, I, I used that connection with McCartney to get attention to the Thriller album. Of course, the song went number, I think it picked it number two, but number one in some countries. And that's how Thriller got its footing, was Paul McCartney's um, The Girl Is Mine. Because if you look at, it it wasn't doing great. And then The Girl Is Mine, then Billie Jean, and then Beat It. But th- that was the first one. That was the kickoff. Uh, so that's that's like the Beatle connection is the, the connection to Cooper and the connection to Jackson. Yeah, and it's hard to believe, isn't it, that uh, Thriller got a slow start? Because, I mean, I remember oh, no. you know, in the heyday, that I mean, that was unbelievable how many copies that album was selling. Oh, I mean, it was the biggest selling album at one point, wasn't it? Yeah, until the Eagles overtook it, right? Yep, a great sense. Yeah, when that the Hell Freezes Over sense. album came out. Yeah. All right. Well, unfortunately, all good things do need to come to an end. And uh, we're at the end of our episode, the Halloween special. Aaron, it has been really, really fun. We have to do this again next year. We're going to have to plan out next year so that uh, our recording schedule has a release on Halloween, I think. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just force it to work. One way or the other, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be taking a short break. We'll probably take one week off uh, our mid-season break because this is uh, episode five and uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, but we've got a really excellent second half of the season coming up for you. And um, in the meantime, as always, uh, please subscribe to the show if you're enjoying what you're hearing. That's the best way to get new episodes. If you can, leave a rating or a review and even better, just share the show with your friends and family anybody who enjoys it Uh, we really enjoy making these episodes for you and uh, we've been receiving excellent feedback and uh, Aaron I think we've got a winning combination here I'm really enjoying this I'm loving it I'm so glad you brought me on so thank you thank you oh me too so until we meet again stay safe be well and see you next time bye everybody and uh, don't get too scared happy Halloween everybody Thanks for listening to the Stewie Tunes Show. Follow us on social media or visit us online at stewietunes.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to click subscribe.